Hello and welcome to episode 04 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels and I'm the host of this show. This is the podcast where we look at individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. These are people who are giants in the history of Christendom, Hall of Famers if you will. If you're of a certain age, you will almost certainly be familiar with Eric Little, even though you may not recognize the name. Little, along with Harold Abrams, was the subject of the fantastic 1981 film Chariots of Fire. And if you haven't seen the film, then you at least know the theme song from it. I plan to hum that song here, but I'm going to save myself some embarrassment and just have you look it up on YouTube instead. If you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, you definitely should check it out, but there's a lot more to Little than the two or three years of athletic focus featured in the film. Eric Little was a Scotsman born in Tianjin, China on January 16, 1902. He was born to missionary parents, the Reverend James Little and Mary Little, who were in China with the London Missionary Society. In 1908, after spending his first years in China and knowing nothing personally of Britain, he and brother Rob were enrolled at Eltham College Blackheath, a school in England for the sons of missionaries. He was at school there until 1920, while his parents and sister Jenny were in China doing missionary work. While in school, he saw his parents very infrequently, and he mostly knew them from letters that they exchanged back and forth. In 1920, Eric joined his older brother Rob at Edinburgh University. Little was not looking at athletics as a primary pursuit at university, His focus was his studies, specifically the sciences. It was only after a friend approached him near the end of his second term about participating in the annual sports that he gave it any real thought at all. Little initially declined to participate because he was too busy with his work, so he said. That wasn't the end of things, however. His conscience got the better of him, and he immediately began to feel guilty about declining. Was it not laziness that caused him to decline? Could he not fit both athletics and scholarship into his schedule? Well, within 24 hours, he relented and agreed that he would run. With the object firmly in his mind, he began training in earnest. He forswore breads and worked his body tirelessly. At that point in his life, he was inexperienced. He'd never taken any athletic endeavor seriously. That inexperience almost cost him as the month before the event, he decided to take a 350-mile biking holiday to Ben Nevis, the highest mountain in Britain. This trip wore his body out, leaving him saddle sore and exhausted. He was young and strong, however, and he recovered in time to win the 100 yards and place second in the 220 at the annual sport. It was then that he met one of the most influential men in his life, amateur coach Tom McKercher. McKercher was a working man. By day, he worked in an Edinburgh printing shop. By night, he was an advisor for runners and footballers in Scotland. He often worked with players from Heart of Midlothian, a professional football side, and he worked with university students, using a modern approach to bring out the best in his athletes. McKercher had seen Little at the Edinburgh Sports Day and agreed to take him on. The two were an excellent match. McKercher seemed to know just exactly how much to push Little, what to train out of him, and what to train up in him. He also understood Little's commitment to Christ. He understood that God was at the top of Little's priority list and never complained when Little was late to train due to church services or mission work. For his part, Little was an apt pupil, combining his God-given talent as a runner with his dedication and adaptability to become a force on the racing circuit. During his first season, Eric was nigh unbeatable at 100 yards, 
and almost as good at 220 yards. He won race after race, collected prize after prize. It was during this first year that the Glasgow Herald predicted his future successes as a British champion and possible Olympian. He had risen quite far, quite fast. After his string of successes on the track, another great influence on Little, D.P. Thompson, stepped into his life. Thompson was a friend of Eric's brother Rob, who was working with the Glasgow Student Evangelical Union, performing missions and ministry work to university students around Glasgow. Thompson recruited Little to speak at Armadale, a small town some 25 miles from Edinburgh. Eric agreed, and this became a major turning point in his life. Eric's name was becoming well-known in Scotland, as he was constantly in the papers for his sporting exploits. This allowed him to draw men to the GCSU gatherings that were heretofore primarily attended by women. Such was the case in Armadale. He delivered the speech, and he delivered it well. He spoke plainly of his own faith, using easily understood words and sentences, preferring to connect with the common man and make the gospel message the center of the gathering. It was after Armadale that he knew that God was going to use his sports achievement for kingdom work. The Olympics were drawing near, only a bit more than a year away at this point. Little was sent to England to run in the Amateur Athletics Association Championships. This would be the first time that Harold Abrams of Chariots of Fire fame saw Little run. Abrams mostly saw him run from behind, as Little shocked the English and easily won the 100 and 220 and cemented himself as a force to be reckoned with. Things were going well for Little until late 1923, when the athletic schedules for the upcoming Paris Olympics were published. The first thing Little noticed was that the heats for the 100 meters, 4x100, and 4x400 meters all included Sunday runs. Little had already made clear his refusal to participate in Sunday competitions, as his religious convictions prevented it. He believed that the Sabbath was the Lord's, and he was going to keep it that way. Unfortunately, the British Olympic Association didn't realize until too late that the heats were scheduled for Sundays. They were unable to get the heats moved, getting no cooperation from the Paris organization, nor from the International Olympic Committee. Failing that, they turned a little and tried to pressure, persuade, and massage him into running the races. Eric stood firm and made himself the goat of the sports world in Britain, or at least to the sports writers. Once it was clear that Little would not run the 100 meters, he was treated as an outcast and a traitor by some. To be fair, he was also hailed by others who applauded his principles and appreciated his stand for his faith. With the 100 meters cast aside, Little and McCurcher set about to transform the runner into an Olympic-class 400-meter man, a monumental feat in the six months or so they had before them. Without getting bogged down in too much sports minutiae, and you might think it's too late for that already, We'll just say that Little did make the transition to the longer runs. He did well enough to finish third in the 200 meters and capture the bronze medal. That brings us to the 400 meters in Paris at the Olympic Games, where Little cemented his place in the history of the Olympic and British sports. It's the reason that Chariots of Fire exists and that we take notice of his story over 100 years after he was born. Little did well enough in the heats to make the final, but not well enough to really put any scare into his competition. The American team was expected to dominate, and the early headlines had been stolen by a little-known Swiss runner, Joseph Imbach, who briefly broke and held the world record. Little was mostly an afterthought. On the day of the 400-meter final, 
One of the British support staff handed Little a piece of paper on which he'd written, In the old book, it says, He that honors me, I will honor. Wishing you the best of success always. Recognizing 1 Samuel 2.30, Little was encouraged. In the end, he ran the best 400 race of his career, leading from the very start and sprinting the entire way. He won the gold over the favorite American runners by yards and set a world record. It was a sporting triumph. With the victory, Little was a national hero. The subtle and not-so-subtle digs at his lack of patriotism or even traitorous stance were replaced with admiration and adulation. His return to Britain was met with cheers, salutes, and fame. He had offers to write books, sell products, make appearances, tour the U.S., and more, but he refused them all. He did participate in a post-Olympics run against the Americans, where the teams put their best against best. Cementing his status, he helped the Brits beat the mighty Americans again. Little continued running in amateur events after the Olympics, but he felt it was the last time to move on to more important things. In 1925, Little was finally to return to the land of his birth and join the London Missionary Society in permanent missions work. He said at the time, It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Hundreds came out to the Waverley Railroad Station to see him off from Scotland. Rather than give a farewell speech, as was expected, Little led the crowd in a rendition of the hymn, Jesus Shall Reign, Where the Sun. He traveled by rail to Chinsen, where he joined the Anglo-Chinese College as a science teacher and athletics coach. He returned to a China in turmoil. It was a China that was politically unstable, violent, and anti-Christian. As a teacher, his energetic and enthusiastic disposition made him a favorite of his students. He believed that inspiring the love of Christ in his students, all from wealthy and influential families, would leave a worthy legacy. He believed that giving these future leaders a solid Christian foundation would lead to better days in the future. While teaching, Little was also the Sunday school director at his father's church, and he helped construct the Mianyun Stadium, which remained in use until 2012 for football and other athletic events. Little continued to run sporadically while in Asia. Though he did not compete in the 1928 Olympics, he did run and win against Olympians from the French and Japanese Olympic teams at an exhibition in China. In 1929, he had the chance to run an 800 meters race against Otto Peltzer, the mighty German. Little competed well and led for over half the race, but ultimately lost. Peltzer encouraged Little to continue training and to be ready for the 1932 Olympic Games. Little declined, however. At one point, when on furlough in Scotland, he was asked if he had regrets about giving up his racing career. His response? It's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. In 1930, Eric became engaged to one of the students at his school, Florence McKenzie. She was also the child of missionaries, though her parents were from Canada. She was 17 at the time of their engagement and more than 10 years Eric's junior. During their engagement, Eric returned to Scotland and was ordained as a minister in the Congregational Union of Scotland. Meanwhile, Florence sailed for Canada, where she was trained as a nurse. 
Eric and Florence did get the chance to visit in 1933 when Eric traveled to China by way of Toronto, where Florence was staying. When they were both back in China, they were married on March 27, 1934. Despite the general tensions in China, things were moving along for the Littles. Daughters Patricia and Heather were born. In 1937, however, events took a drastic turn. Japan invaded China. The Littles were moved inland to rural Shaoxing, beyond the Japanese lines of control. Eric's brother Rob was there, and Eric became the acting superintendent of the local missionary hospital. You can imagine the tension felt by Eric and his family. As a father myself, it boggles the mind, and I don't know that I would show the same bravery and resolve and, frankly, faith that Eric and Florence did. Mission work continued under duress until 1939, when the family traveled to Scotland and Canada for another furlough. 1940 found the whole family back in China. By this point, the whole of Europe was embroiled in what would become known as World War II. In 1941, the British government advised all of its citizens to leave the country. Eric felt duty-bound to remain and care for those in his ministerial care. Florence and the girls did evacuate to Canada, however, separating the family. The plan was to meet up after the end of the Japanese invasion. Making the parting even more bitter was that Florence was expecting their third child, another daughter. Maureen was born in Canada and would never meet her father. The war between Japan and China carried on with fierce attacks, counterattacks, periods of stalemate, and times of movement. December 7, 1941 was a day that would live in infamy as Japan bombed the American fleet at Pearl Harbor hoping to avoid U.S. intervention in Japan's Pacific plans. Japanese-occupied China was a tense place. After the U.S. and Japan entered World War II, the Japanese moved inland. In 1943, Little and others were captured and placed in the Weishine internment camp on March 30th. Eric was dedicated to God, and even being held prisoner did not stop his mission. He organized classes and taught children, he organized sporting events to give the prisoners some relief from the everyday dreariness in the camp. He preached sermons, taught the Bible, and just generally tried to keep the camp relations as peaceable as possible. His desire to keep the children as entertained as possible with games and sports came directly from his desire to protect them. He feared that infighting among the children, who came from all different classes, would attract unwanted attention from the guards and make the camp an even more miserable and dangerous place to be. Little even surrendered his famous Sabbath-keeping. He would go to any lengths to protect those he felt responsibility for. One of the camp's survivors, Langdon Gilkey, later said this of Little, Often in an evening I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youth. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life, and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. On February 21, 1945, he wrote his wife a letter wherein he complained of suffering a nervous breakdown. He'd been having headaches, dizzy spells, and even some minor strokes. It was no nervous breakdown, however, and later that very same day, Eric Little died of an inoperable brain tumor. His last words were the appropriate, it's complete surrender. He was a man who had surrendered his entire life to God. Eric Little gave up a life of fame and fortune to become a servant to the truly needy.
He was a true life example of Galatians 5.13, which says, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. I can think of no greater recent example of this sort of servanthood than Eric Little. Of course, Little's story doesn't end with his death. He's gone on to inspire countless others with his story. He lived a life split in two. The first half, consisting of his athletic endeavors and culminating with his dramatic victory in the 1924 Olympic Games. The second half was a tale of service to others and humble missionary work. The two halves were joined and subsumed, however, by his love for and submission to Jesus Christ, his Savior. And that makes him truly a giant of the faith. Well, that concludes another episode of Giants of the Faith. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or an Apple Podcasts. And send along any comments or corrections to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. Yeah.